let's get started tonight. Welcome to session two of Operation 180. I title, entitled this, Where Are You? That's the question we're going to ask at the end. Remember, we're, look, we're looking at the Bible's plan for your recovery and restoration as laid out by Luke and his gospel and the book of Acts. Believe it or not, the spiritual principle behind the 12 steps is contained in Luke and his gospel and in the book of Acts. Let's look at our theme verses on the top of your handout. This is the, the centerpiece of, of this uh, series here. This is Luke 24 at 44. Then he said to them, Jesus, this is Jesus in the resurrection. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written. And here's the two things we're going to be covering tonight. Thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day. And that repentance, there's a word for tonight, and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And see, I am sending upon you what my father promised. So stay here and in the city until you have been clothed with power on high. That's an amen, isn't it? Remember, this is called the Lucan Commission. The, the, the Western Church, the ch church in the United States here, the, a lot of us, the Matthean Commission, you know, to go make disciples of all nations. But here is the Lucan Commission that includes repentance and forgiveness. What we're going to look at tonight, there's two main parts, there's two central prongs to this commission that we want to pick up on, that Jesus is the suffering and risen Messiah, and there's forgiveness available to all who repent. Remember last week, the way that we're structuring this is we're doing hope first. So we did steps two and three last session. We came to believe. We talked a lot about believe and faith. Remember faith was risk and direction, moving in that belief. And we did a third step prayer. We did the Wesleyan covenant prayer last session. Now we're gonna pick it up and see what is the core of this commission. And we're going to take a look at how it was preached in the early church because it's very relevant to your faith and your belief in your recovery today. So tonight, we're going to move from the first aspect, Jesus as the suffering and risen Messiah. We're going to spend a little time there. And let's button up that for a second. Remember last session, we said there was hope. There was hope as Jesus as the Messiah. And that's not a word that we use a lot today. We want to be friends with Jesus. We want to invite him into our heart. We don't often talk about him as the Messiah. And the good question is why? What does a Messiah have to do with my recovery anyway? <laughs> That's a good question. And I always ask, I answer this, but wait, there's more. And whenever you, whenever you, whenever I get into the scripture and look, there's, with Jesus, there's always more. <laughs> Remember last time where we ended the prayer, was we give everything we understand about ourselves to everything we understand about Jesus. That's all he requires, right? And tonight we're gonna, I hope we understand just a little bit more. And I'm pushing back against two things. One is a secular worldview, and one is a limited view in the church of, I think, how we preach how Jesus is, Jesus was, and Jesus is to be. So the first is a worldview that God, that Jesus is some, He's some distant deity. He's not particularly involved in our lives, right? 
I mean, he, he's like the master clockmaker. He made the earth, he set it to spin, and he kind of, he's just out there. This is the deity version. This is called the moralistic therapeutic deism. He just wants us to be happy. He wants us to feel good. And you know, if you're more good than bad, we all get into heaven. And heaven is far away. It's way far away, right? That really is the current main secular worldview. If you survey the younger generation, they are basically moralistic, therapeutic deists. But that's not who Luke says Jesus is, was it? Remember last week, last session, I get to talk about Christmas again. <laughs> I can preach Christmas all year long. <laughs> Remember the Christmas story. Remember the hope that Luke is saying, that the hope for all, Luke 2 at verse 10. But the angel said to them, this is to the shepherds, don't be afraid for see, I'm bringing you good news of great joy for all people. To you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is who? The Messiah, the Lord. Jesus was there in the city. He's not some distant deity. He just didn't wind up the earth and go away. Luke tells us the Messiah came here, not far away. And that is good news, amen? amen. And Luke tells us a few verses later, at Luke, Luke 2 at verse 14 now, glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace among those whom he favors. Peace. He does care. He came to bring us peace. Peace on earth. Peace for all. Remember, Luke was the Gentile. Luke was the physician. It was for him too, not just the Jews, right? The other view I want to push back on a little bit is that Jesus' work as being on the cross is really solely focused on salvation as an eternal life. Of course that's important. But there's so much more. Salvation is presented as a much more rich process in Luke that includes repenting and forgiveness. And let me show you what I mean. Let's take a look at Peter's first sermon. Now, if anybody knows about forgiveness, Peter. it's Peter. You know, we love to talk about Peter in this ministry. <laughs> Peter, the one that couldn't stand up to a couple of teenage girls. The one whose mouth seemed to run first and his brain second. <laughs> and how he must have regretted denying Jesus as the Christ. And yet Jesus forgives him the threefold redemption, right? Do you love me more than these? And now, under the power of the Holy Spirit, Luke is the Holy Spirit gospel. Everyone's operating under the power of the Spirit. He stands up to the Jewish authorities to all the bigwigs and their fancy robes, right? And let's pick it up at Acts 2 and 22. We're at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit had just fallen on the 120 in the upper room. And Peter, of all people now, becomes the rock, right? And he says, you that are Israelites, imagine him saying that, listen to what I have to say. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God's with deeds of power, wonders, and signs that God did through him among you, as you yourselves know. I think he was pointing to, by the way. <laughs> this man handed over to you, 
Here I'm accusing them. To the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of those outside the law. And here's a key. But God raised him up, having freed him from death, because it was impossible for him to be held in his power. Ooh. And he wants to free you from death too. That power, that's the power that proves God is God and Jesus is the Messiah. What I mean by that is in the Old Testament, God said, I'm the one that took you out of Egypt, right? Let me talk to the moms here. Because you, you can say something that men can't. When you're mad at your kid, you, I know what you say. I brought you into this world and I can take you out. Because <laughs> yeah. you have sovereign authority over your children, right? That's kind of what he's saying here. This is the God that raised Jesus from the dead. Boom. You all knew what happened. And the power of the Holy Spirit raising Jesus. He is the Messiah. That's the resurrection power, right? And he continues just a few verses later. Acts 2, now at verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of all that we are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. That's the ascension. Don't stop at Easter, right? Don't forget about the ascension. Having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you both see and hear. The ascension, the glorification of Jesus at the right hand of his Father, and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit is for all of us. No matter who we are, what we've done. It's that fear that keeps us in the dark. A few verses later at verse 36, Act 2 at 36. Therefore, let the entire house of Israel, listen to Peter, <laughs> know with certainty that God has made him both, both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified, and then he dropped the mic. <laughs> boom! I typed a boom in here. Boom! This is, I, I don't want to dunk on the modern church and his message of Jesus as a, as a friend as a relationship, letting him into their heart. I don't think Jesus expects the church to remain static for 2,000 years, do you? But it's illustrative to see how the apostles process these events. We're only 50 days outside of Easter. This is the person they followed for three, three and a half years, and he's gone, and then he's back. How did they process this? That's what Peter explains here. How do they read into Scripture the fulfillment of the Scripture in Jesus? And that's the message they took to the streets. That's the message that we proclaim from the rooftops, just as we sang about, right? And how does everyone receive this now? All these religious authorities, how are they receiving this message from Peter? That's verse 37, Acts 2 at verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter said, circle it, repent. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be, for, circle it, forgiven, right? And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Peter lays out this process. Repent, baptism, receive forgiveness, and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now don't turn that into a legal rule. <laughs> 
what's going on here is we got to repent. And then he makes a general call for a baptism. Let's talk about repentance for a second. Peter made a general call for repentance and then says, let each of you be baptized. Baptize, baptism in the name of Jesus or Jesus the Messiah, as he says it. What does it show? It shows that the individual has become united with the Messiah, right? And it belongs to the renewed people of God. It's an outer expression of inner change of our faith. It shows that you have repented, right? We're raised with Christ. Our past is behind us, right? And that commitment, it has some consequences. Our sins are forgiven and we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. While repentance is a necessary condition, these blessings are still gifts of grace, right? And we should always understand the gift of the Spirit. It's not a gift of an it. He is a, the person of a person of the Trinity. He is a he, not an it, right? The gift of the Spirit himself, it is he who regenerates, indwells, transforms our life. All the fruit and ministry gifts flow from he, the one gift for all. This is the main point of, of Luke's gospel. It's for everyone. The unlimited scope of salvation encompasses all generations, all cultures. What does Peter say? Those far away, right? God declares that everyone he calls to himself will experience salvation. It's God's doing, and it depends on his effective call of you. Am I called? If you're listening, you've been called. If you care tonight, I'm going to work with it. You've been called. And you are called into a community of healing. Let me show you what I mean. So Luke finishes this section. Remember, he's writing to a benefactor. And the benefactor is probably asking, hey, how's the church going? I gave some money. I donate, donated this or that. What's the health of the church? And Luke tells us, Act 2, verse 44. All believed were together and had all things in common. How about that? Unity. The early church was one big band. <laughs> right? Before we move into repentance in some detail, I want to explain to you as, as we dip our toe into some hard stuff, where I see this ministry going and really what it means is my ministry calling bringing this forward to you tonight. This ministry exists to create unity by proclaiming healing for all through God's word and forgiveness. We proclaim healing for all through God's word and forgiveness. I want to read to you four values that I pray that this, that this series embodies. One is unity and community. Unity and community. Because healing only happens in community, as I mentioned. I see this demonstrated by open and vulnerable sharing, both in families and our small groups that meet after. That's where healing happens. Number two is truth and light. God is present in his word, isn't he? And that's demonstrated by the conviction of the Holy Spirit that's brought about through the teaching of, of the truth of scripture. Through the truth of scripture, God is present in his word. And therein dwells truth and light. Alcoholism was a very dark and lonely disease for me. Truth and light. 
That's the opposite, isn't it? Amen. Value number three is recovery and restoration. Because God has a plan of rescue and redemption for all who repent and receive His forgiveness. I see this demonstrated over and over in the Gospels through Jesus' own ministry, His healing, and my own witness, let me tell you. And finally, this ministry exists to organize and activate and to organize to activate. The Bible just doesn't organize people just to organize them. I did that as a career. That's what we do as lawyers, right? People who need healing find support, spiritual direction, and life transformation in safe and structured groups. And this is demonstrated by Christ's desire for us to each fully develop the unique ministry gifts that he gave each of us because it's that that organizes us as a church. So let's begin the next session of uh, the section of that theme verse, Luke 24, and let's look at repent because Peter's call is to repent. So repent must be first, right? And so it will be with us. Let me speak one second on repentance. And I'm going to give you three examples of characters in the Bible and watch them. In the New Testament, the Greek words that underlie repent occur 56 times. But most of them are in Luke's literature. Luke and Act. 24 times in Luke, 11 times in Acts. The other book that it appears in is the book of Revelation which we had the, I had the pleasure of preaching through that, what, three summers ago. And if, when you preach through it and look in detail, you see what's happening because in the seven letters to the seven churches, eight times repent occurs there because that's what Jesus is telling some of those churches to do. Paul doesn't use that word that much and does not appear at all in the works of John, either the gospel or his epistles. Usually these terms express repentance in this full sense of a complete change of one's way of life. Although the sense of regret sometimes can, can be negative or operative, the spiritual change implied is a sinner's return. There's direction on repenting. There's always this directionality to it. It's also used by John the Baptist, and he calls everyone to have a life that's worthy of their repentance or produce fruits that are worthy of their repentance. You just don't say, I'm sorry. How many non-apology apologies do we see on TV? The celebrities are really good at this. I'm, I'm sorry you took it the wrong way. No. Oh, I was just kidding. That's an abusive trick from an abuser, right? No, 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 no. The idea is that there's human agency involved. There's some will, and we have to move in the direction of God. It's sometimes, as we've talked about, especially in Luke, it's put together with baptism. That is this overt public act, which says that I have repented inside. But repentance manifests itself reality, or real, by producing good fruit, appropriate to the new spiritual life. And that's what we're going to work on. Sometimes it's brought out to really show a distinct change that's coupled with that repentance. In Acts, it's a verb that uses to express the positive side of change. 
where turning from sin is a negative aspect. Because we're turning, we're turning towards God and away from darkness and sin. In other words, we repent and turn to God, which means we're turning from sin. So with a hope of turning to Jesus the Messiah as the single source of our salvation, having had the belief and faith last session, that was step two that we discussed, with the hope of turning and returning to God by turning from sin, that's step three, we made a decision to turn our lives and our wills over to the care of God, right? We now look at step one. And the reason, again, I do this because in the Bible, hope comes first. The grace of God comes out, and I remember I had it, and I'm like, there must be a better way. And then I got to the work, right? Because that's when we realize we're at our bottom. So let's take a look at step one. I've reworded it slightly for this ministry. Step one, we admitted that we were powerless over our compulsive, self-destructive behaviors and that our lives had become unmanageable. The original step one from the big book in 1939 said we were powerless over alcohol. But here we're going to see that sin is separation and any compulsive, self-destructive behavior, that's what I call an addiction, will render our lives unmanageable. The best way to look at this is we've got three great examples. We've got three characters, including figures in the Bible, that experience a biblical bottom. And this is one of the tough ones. I know, I know I'm talking right out to you right now. You're watching somebody who just spin in the drain. You're like, can't they see how much they're hurting themselves and hurting me? I was just, I told you, I'm still counseling someone in my office. It's like, when is he going to realize? <laughs> when do we hit the bottom? Remember, I had that deputy, I was doing a ride along with him. We, we just checked out some homeless guy. He goes, he goes, why do they do that, chaplain? Why won't they stop? I said, you're asking me about the bottom? Well, we reach our bottom when we stop digging. He goes, that's great, but that doesn't help mom because they're tired of seeing them dig. And boy, we dig. Shovel breaks in half, I keep on digging. <laughs> I'll dig with my hands, but I'm going to keep on digging. until what is this bottom? What is a biblical bottom? First, let me introduce one one concept, godly grief. The three stories that we're going to see all have one thing in common, and that's what Paul calls godly grief. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, at verse 10, he says, For godly grief produces a repentance. Ooh, there's our word, right? I love it when a sermon writes itself, by the way. <laughs> he produces a repentance that leads to salvation, and it brings no regret. But worldly grief produces death. That no regret part is so key. Do you know anybody that is sorry they got sober? That is sorry they broke an addiction? The worst day of my life was when I stopped drinking. No, no one's going to say that. No, there's no regret. And remember, death here is the spiritual death of the soul. We're going to visit that next section in some detail. Godly grief is a key component that is present in what I call the biblical bottom. And what is this? Well, it's more than just punching a ticket to heaven. What is this salvation we're talking about? I put a definition in your handout. This Greek word, soteria. Look what the nouns is. It's a rescue or a safety. And then there is a 
physiological or moral aspect that's we're delivered. We're delivered to health. There's salvation as we as we talk about it today, or save and saving. Rescue or safety. Safety is the key word. It's a God-centered, family-centered grief that moves us towards God to close the gap of separation that exists between us when we're out there ripping and running and our family and God. We're rescued from ourselves. It's a salvation that brings healing through safety. And there's no regret because once you come in a light, you don't want to go back. And it's built on the safety and the covering of community. That's what the plan of redemption of the Bible is all about. So what are we delivered from? That's sin. We're going to define sin in this series as a compulsive, self-destructive behavior that separates us from either both God and community or God and family. Because when we are separated from God, we can't reflect His glory. Nothing reflects in the dark, right? This is what Paul talks about. But I want to put an angle on this, on, on this scripture here. This is Romans 3. We've heard it a, a, how many times? Hundreds of times. At verse 21. But now apart from, I put one, an excerpt in there. Let me read the full context here. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested to by the law and the prophets, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Because there is no distinction. And here's the key, verse 23. Since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all sin. That's the fall, right? They are now justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption, there's that word again, that is in Christ Jesus. But one thing that kept me out of the church was this scripture gets weaponized, doesn't it? You are totally depraved. So let me get this right. To join your club, I have to say I'm such a dirtbag and worthless. Then I can join? It's like, sign me up, right? It gets, it gets, it hits that way. I had it thrown on me at a funeral. I'm like, are you kidding me? I don't think that's what Paul's talking about here. Let me, let me explain it this way. I had some good. I mean, I wasn't all bad. I was paying the bills. <laughs> Right? I, was, I was doing great work for my clients, but I was falling short. I was separated from my family. I wasn't present. But here's what I've come to learn. The Bible in Paul especially talks about we have many parts that all work together. We are all gifted with our own unique set of spiritual gifts from the Holy Spirit, our own set of ministry gifts. And for each one of those that I have, see if you follow me here, I fall short a little in each of those. When you add it all together, I fall short one piece at a time. Add it up together, I do fall totally. But it's a little short in each of them. Jesus had all the gifts together in one human who is divine as God, perfectly equipped, and now he sits in glory by his Father's side. No one can match up to that. But I believe he told us that is the standard. So we're all going to fall a little short. And different seasons, 
We have different gifts. We have different ministry gifts. And we're still going to fall a little short from time to time, but in different ways. We all fall short. It's not that we don't add up to anything. You're not nothing. You're something. We all fall a little short. But when we're out there in addiction, it might be a little shorter. So here in Operation 180, we're going to identify those areas. We're going to call them shortcomings that need work in your life in this season. But the goal is not just to focus on those shortcomings. We're going to remove them. We're going to replace them. We're going to take out those compulsive, self-destructive behaviors, including addictions that separate us from God and family, God and community. Oh, Jesus is calling. One of these times, I'm going to pick up and go, Pastor Tim, welcome to my sermon. You want to join in? <laughs> the phone just rang if you didn't hear it. We're going to turn from our addictions, and we're going to turn towards the healing light of God. Amen? So let's look at three characters. This is how we'll finish it up. The first is prodigal son. Luke 15 starts, I'm going to read beginning at verse 17. But when he came to himself, boom, there's the bottom. When he came to his senses, some tra translations read. This is the bottom. Or in, in addiction, we call this a moment of clarity, right? When he came to himself, remember he's ripping and running. Remember he... He declared his father dead and took his inheritance. And he went out with prostitutes. And he went, he's, he's out in a pig field. And remember, he's getting ready to eat the Purina pig chow, right? Jesus is painting a picture of the absolute Jewish bottom. I call him Peace Son. If Prodigal Son was a DJ, he'd be Peace Son. Prodigal Son says, When I came to myself, he looks towards home and he says, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to bread enough and to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. Then he makes a plan, right? I'm going to get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he sets off. He actually follows through with it. And went to his father. But while he was still far off, remember this beautiful picture, his father saw him, and was filled with compassion. And he ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. And here is the this, this statement of repentance. Verse 21. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Keep those in your mind. There's two aspects to his bottom. He realizes in one moment, one instant, that he sinned against God and he sinned against his father, his family. Until we get both of those at the same time, we can trade one for the other. Because I was out there going, God doesn't care. I'm not sinning against him. Where is he? He's not here. He made me an alcoholic. Oh, my family's upset. And then a couple months later, I'd switch and go, my family doesn't care. I know I'm sinning against God, but I'm putting a roof over their head. You see, you got a lever, you pull it. <laughs> If there's a loophole, alcoholics find it. <laughs> That's an e this is one of the easier addiction stories because this is just so full of self-destructive and selfish behaviors. But he repents by turning towards his father's house, which is in this parable, is the kingdom, right? I have sinned against heaven and before you. Let's look at Jacob. 
Now let's pick it up where Jacob is on the run. Remember, Jacob stole the blessing, gave his brother a bowl of lentils, <laughs> puts on this hairy suit, fools, fools his father. Remember, he's, he's kind of he's out there getting stuff. He's, he's, he's pulling fast ones over his, over his relatives, right? But his past is catching up with him. And if you've never looked at where he ends up, this is really revealing. Genesis 32 at verse 22, that same night he got up and he took his two wives, his two maids and his 11 children, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok and he took them and sent them across the stream and likewise everything he had. So he's on one side of a stream. A stream is a, is a river and a river is something in the Bible to be crossed, right? And look at this. Jacob was left alone. You ever notice that verse? He's all alone. And a man who turns out to be God, some see him as a pre-incarnate Jesus. That's okay. You can see him as that too. A man, God, wrestled with him until daybreak. His past behaviors have now separated him from his huge family and all of his stuff. And as a result of the blessing, in quotes, that he stole on his own with mom's help, he's all alone. That's where I was. I was alone in hotel rooms. How about you? It's lonely out there. But now let's pick it up at verse 25. When the man saw that he could not, did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him in his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. Now he knows where blessings come from, doesn't he? And he asked the proper source. So he said to him, what is your name? Oh, this is a great line. Because in that time, names are everything. Names are our family. Names are our past. His father asked him who he was, and he said he saw, didn't he? What is your name? He said, Jacob. Then the man said, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. What is your name? What have you been calling yourself? What were you called? Maybe as a kid. What is your name? What are you carrying? If God asked you what your name was, what would you say right now? Third story, Genesis 3. We're going backwards in the Bible. <laughs> Here's the fall. This is after Adam and Eve eat from the tree. They heard, I'm picking up uh, Genesis 3, starting at verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the time of the evening breeze. What a beautiful image, isn't it? And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Ooh. Remember, they had fallen for the lies. Did God really say? Think about the implication of this question. God knows where they are. They can't hide behind a tree. 
their sin has separated from them, from God. He's asking them, where are you in relation to me? He wants to know where they are in relation to him. Where are you tonight? That is an amazing question. Then he goes on to say, what have you done, right? Later. I got two questions for you. Where are you in relation to God? Think of the prodigal son. Where are you in relation to family? That's where we start. Which one of these characters do you most identify with? Are you ripping and running like the prodigal son? You're doing all those things that make you feel good, but you're acting out at the expense of your family. Who have you left in the dust? Are you Jacob? Are you looking for blessings of the world through material stuff? You're worshiping the created instead of the creator, right? Are you wheeling and dealing? That's what got him in trouble, right? Is your past catching up to you? Are you alone across a river? Are you Adam and Eve? Are you hiding in shame? Are you actually trying to hide from God? What are you hiding from God? Are you afraid to come out into the light? That was John chapter 3 that we read last week. The people who do evil, remember, stay in the darkness because they hate the light because their deeds may be exposed. Remember that quote? So let me ask you, where are you today? This is where we start the process of self-examination. It's time to turn. It's time to turn away from those things that separate us from our family, from community, and from God. I pray these examples have cut you to your heart, as Peter said. It's time to repent and move into the light. We're going to further develop the con concept of sin and, and dive down more into this biblical bottom next session and begin to get to the hard work of self-examination. So we'll see you next session.